Well, this is Frank Skinner, and I'm with Emily Dean. I say that every Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. I mean, usually there's uh, um, Alan Cochran is with us as well. But um, I think if I do this right, this time you get to do most of the talking. How will that be as a novelty? Oh, this is my absolute fantasy. <laughs> and that's a new radio station that I will be launching. Oh, well, absolute I will. I look forward to the TV trailers. <laughs> so, um, Emily, you've, you've written uh, a book. You've taken a sort of Ron Seal approach to the title. Um, in case you don't remember Ron Seal, they were the people who said it... it does what it says on the tin. Yes. I think your book is a a fair example of that. So it's called... Well, you know what the title is, and if you're offering a critique of it, may I throw that back at you, because the title of the book is Everybody Died, So I Got a Dog. Everybody Died, So I Got a Dog. And I came up with the title when I was doing the radio show with you and Alan, and I remember talking to you saying... I don't know, it was mid-link, I don't know, Ocean Colour Scene or something we're playing. And I said, I don't know what to call this book. And I remember, Frank, you said, just tell me what happens in the book. And I was trying to explain it to you, and obviously there's a lot of complicated themes to get across. Mm -hmm. There's dogs, Mm -hmm. there's loss, there's a bohemian weird childhood. And I didn't know how to incorporate all of those themes. And you said, well, just tell me quickly what happened. And I said, everybody died, so I got a dog. And I will never forget this. As Ocean Colour Scene came to an end, you said, well, there's your title. Mm. I wondered, this book is, um, it's very, very exposing. It's very, very um, vulnerable making. Doing interviews about it, you know, doing Lorraine Mm. talking about this, is is that very anxiety making? Because... It's a very precious cargo that this book carries. Very deep, very personal, very significant moments in your life. And one has to be careful, I, I imagine, that, that you don't cast your pearls before swine. No, I think that's a good point. And I think, yeah, obviously there's my sister's death and my parents' death. I feel bad to Absolute Radio. I've gone in with the heavy stuff very Ooh, soon. It, they it, won't it, like it, it, Frank. No, it, it really it's Is fine. it OK? OK. Um, but, you know, death happens, sorry, mm. business. Um, I think you're right, and there are private, intimate moments surrounding that. So I think when you're doing that kind of stuff, I just have made decisions about that. So, for example, I'll give you an example of that. There was um, a newspaper that was extracting my book, and the bit that they wanted to extract from my book was the moment that my sister dies, and I absolutely refused. Because for me, that has to be taken in the context of the whole book because her children are reading that. Mm -hmm. And also just because I feel people do behave very oddly, I discovered, when around a deathbed and say and do strange, unexpected things. And I wanted to be honest about that. But I think if you take that out of context and you don't have any sympathy for those characters and you don't know anything about them, you'll just think, these people are awful. What are they doing? So I've had to make decisions like that. And I think with Lorraine Frank, as you say, and Jeremy Vine, that's a sort of different chat. And I think probably because it's only seven minutes and you're sort of keeping things on a slightly lighter level, it's, it's different. But I think you're right. I have had to give some thought to that. There are some things, for example, in the whole book that I haven't put in that are private. 
mm. about my, so for example, saying goodbye to my sister, because I think that's kind of between me and her. Mm. Um, and I know you you wrote a book, and I, in fact, I wanted to ask you about that, because writing a memoir, it's difficult. But I did, I thought about, I remember reading your book when it first came out. Was it in the 90s or early 2000s? Uh, 2000, yeah. Okay, and... It is still available in... I know. <laughs> it is. <laughs> he had to do it. Uh, um, no, and it really... It's difficult because I don't want this to become a sort of mutual backslapping thing, but I have to be truthful about that, and I think I was most worried about you reading my book more than anyone, I think, because you're my friend, and I thought you'd say, oh, no, don't go in the basement, it's dark down there, mm. as in overexposing myself, but also... To me, given your book and how extraordinary I think it is, and I've read it so many times, that autobiography, thinking, what was that funny thing he said? So it was kind of, it felt, you reading my memoir felt like inviting Heston Blumenthal around for dinner and having to rustle up a souffle. I was so nervous. Um, so I guess I want to ask you a question, which is how did you cope with that side of it as well, the exposing your innards? Well, I I had a similar experience with um, the book was not only was it serialised in a tabloid newspaper, but it was their first attempt. They wanted to abridge it. So basically, um, I think basically on, on the, on the uh, coming from a position of tremendous disrespect for the intelligence of their readers, they wanted to take out some of the cleverer concepts and bigger words. And I really didn't want that yeah. to happen. And also they wanted to put in, I think, a couple of incidents of me in hotel rooms with women I'd just met on the same day. I don't that side On the same day as um, the death of my mother, for example. And I, and I'm sure this, you felt like this about the, the death of your sister being included in a newspaper, I didn't want that to be one of my greatest hits. It's a bit... These things, they need a mm. setting and yeah. they need a context. And if you take them out of that, then I think that precious cargo I'm yeah. talking about is liable to get very damaged. I agree. And I think it's up to the, the writer, the owner of those memories, to mm. protect them. Let's, let's talk a bit about... I mean, your family, in a way, are the stars of the book... And um, even, even now they're dead, they're outshining me. Well, it's so I'm, unfair. But for the section of the book when they're all on stage still, yeah. so to speak, they are pretty remarkable bunch. I yes. mean, I've heard stories in the past, of course, about your family. And I, so I recognise some of these, but there was a lot of new ones as well. Um, can you briefly summarise sure. what it was like um, growing up in that family unit? Yeah, so I would, I'd always, the phrase I'd always use to describe my family was sort of benevolent chaos. And they were um, a theatrical, bohemian, artsy family. And they were arts and crafts. They were they? arts and crafts. They were arts yeah. and crafts. But they were arts and crafts. And there was, you know, the atmosphere was permanent. There was this permanent haze of cigarette smoke and actors talking long into the night, sometimes about Shakespeare, sometimes mm. about Doctor Who, um, which I thought you would enjoy, Frank, because I know you're a Doctor Who fan. But um, they, yeah, it, fe it felt wonderful to be part of it because it was like being in the circus, you know. It was like we got to hang out with all these extraordinary characters who were all larger than life and 
everything was anecdotal. If you didn't have an anecdote, you were nothing. There was no point existing. That's how we all communicated with each other. And so my sister and I were very much... It's like living in a green room, isn't it? (laughs) But it is, isn't it? Do you know, I've never thought of it like that. And I think that is honestly the best way I've heard anyone describe my childhood. That's what I'm going to say from now on. That's exactly what it was like. Or backstage. It was like permanently in the wings. So it was that sense of, why would you say anything if if it wasn't worth saying in an anecdotal setting or as you say in a green room you're telling stories all the time so we learnt to do that me and my sister I think from my parents Um, Can I ask you a question about that because I I watch a a lot of documentaries about artists and writers and stuff like this and I always come away from it not always but a lot of the time feeling generally for the children of Bohemians I think it's it's great living the bohemian life. Mm. I think it's often the kids who get the sharp end of it, though. Would you, do you think that's true of you? I do. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's difficult because what you get out of it, you do end up with something, but it's not a sense of stability. And it's not... I think I was always conscious, really, as a child, actually, Frank, that I had missed out on innocence. I really do. I think I would look at other kids and I was conscious they had an innocence that I didn't have and I was aware that I had a much older head on my shoulders and I knew, you know, my father was a brilliant man and I'm sad that you actually never got to know him because I think you would have really sort of liked him and got on with him. But Well, I like him in the book. Do certainly. you? Yeah. I like someone who in the middle of a family row will quote from Hemingway. I mean, that that's my kind of guy. <laughs> Well, but the level of that, that's what would happen. And so, and I mentioned this in the book as well, but, you know, that idea that if we were disobedient, my parents would deal with that by writing Shakespeare quotes. And my mother in her sort of calligraphic script, and she would stick them all over the house. They would never say, I'm furious with you, how dare you go to your room. We would walk downstairs and there would be a quote saying, and this above all to thine own self be true, pinned up on the kitchen cupboard. And that was a way of communicating that we shouldn't have stolen that eyeliner from the shop or whatever. That yeah. was, it was that was just how they they like to communicate. And but it it means that as a person, um, you are a, quite a performer mm. in conversation. And coming from me, as you can imagine, that is not a criticism. <laughs> I often look at people who aren't and think, uh, yeah, come on. And Hang on, I remember, sorry to interrupt, I remember telling you a story and you enjoyed this, which was we were at one of these, I think it was the director's house, one of the green room people, we'll, call, we'll mm. refer to them now. And this sort of summed up my childhood, that this director turned round to somebody's, rather an actor's rather quiet wife who was just innocently sitting there eating her meal and said, you have contributed nothing to this evening. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <laughs> now, to me, that... And you know what's what the weirdest thing? I remember looking at that director and thinking, yes, he's right. I remember judging that woman and thinking, he's absolutely right. What was the point of you being here? I've often been tempted to <laughs> end Room 101 like that. I mean, imagine ending a panel show like it. 
But you see, I, I love that. And there's so many fabulous um, stories about the family and the strange life. One thing that doesn't feature as much as I expected mm. is that you were um, a, a child actor. You were. Um, I was. Now, they don't, oh, I don't want to talk about that. No, but, I really do. They don't get a very good press, do they, child actors? We expect them. You know, if you don't hear of one for 10 years, you mm. assume they're dead or in prison. <laughs> it, it's, it really is seen as like, it's one of the, the few minorities that you can still pile into, I think, is the child, the grown up child actor. I'm going to start going on Twitter and saying we have rights to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hashtag. I mean, how, what, what, can you give us a brief summary yeah. of your career? What the kind of what was the highs? So, um, I used to. Well, I went to a drama school called Anna Scher's, mm. which people may or may not be familiar with. But it's a, it's sort of it was a fashionable drama school in Islington. A lot of people from EastEnders went there. I think the Kemp brothers went there. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, talking about Laurence Olivier and Charles so John yeah. Gielgud, but, you know, they did some acting. Yeah. So it was very much the idea that kids from the local sort of community were able to get acting work. And it wasn't just people like Bonnie Langford and, you know, the sort of stage school kids. So my sister and I went there and we started... I started getting parts. The first part I got was in SOS Titanic. Yeah. And... I remember it was a, it was strange because all my friends had to be... Was it a movie or a... Yeah, it was a movie. Okay. And all my friends had to be, at the drama school, had to be um, steerage. Oh, okay. And because of the way I spoke, even though we had no money, and as you know, we had Kestrel Lager money, but, you, you know, champagne you, taste. You were whirling around the ballroom. I was whirling around the ballroom. Ah, and lovely. I remember having that real sense of feeling other and a bit embarrassed, and I thought, I don't like this. I want to be like them. Um, but I, I, I continued acting. I did a film called Memoirs of a Survivor, which was by, you know, Doris Lessing, who was oh, one yeah. of our friends, you know, because I had the tantrum and I said, I don't want to go to Doris Lessing's, which is the best tantrum I've ever had. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, uh, I mean, let's, I'm, so far, it's the best tantrum <laughs> you've had. But yeah, so, and then I got Dare the Triffids, which... Mm. Which uh, I, th I that, think you quote Mark Gatiss in, in your book, the, uh, the, the co-creator of Sherlock, as describing you as, um, is it British sci-fi royalty? Sci-fi ro sci royalty, yeah. yeah. I was really proud of that. Frank. Because it was a great, it was a great series there. Um, but it, it was interesting because I got, um, I was going to say when I got Triffids. Like I yeah, that, how brilliant. <laughs> My self-important no, thing. let's call it Triffids. I'm happy to call it day. <laughs> when I got Triffids, dear, uh, which was my, I guess it was my three lions, Frank, mm. really, of, my, um, of that part of my career. Brief as it was, I did have a sense that, even as a child, that things were, could potentially go in another direction because I was getting attention and it was a big high-profile series. And I remember the Daily Star ringing up to do an interview and they sort of told lies about what I'd said. They said, but the Triffids really scary. You know, did they leave you on set with scary Triffids? Mm. And I said, no, it was fine. Um, but they made it up anyway. And I do remember my mother, who was an actress herself, mm. or actor, I should say, 
But I say in the book, her favourite phrase was, get off the phone, my agent could be trying to call, to which my father would respond, but alas, he never does. And he didn't. And I think, I wonder, looking back, Frank, I think it must have been tough for her. I think, you know, having a child... I mean, imagine if your comedy career hadn't worked out and then Buzz was suddenly getting phone calls from, you know, John Glass. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. Can you explain that? Well, it's a it's a light entertainment legend. But if he was getting phone calls from the Palladium saying we'd like Buzz to come in and do twenty minutes yeah. next Saturday, would you struggle with that? Um, well, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, and I don't mm. think anyone does until they're put in that position. True. Um, I mean, I see you now. This book is. Um, I think it's really happening. People are talking to me about it all the time. And I see you and I now as a bit like James Mason and Judy Garland in um, A Star Is Born. I know I'm two remakes too late on that casting, but you know, <laughs> I see uh, the you know my career as it shrinks and your and yours expands. I shall have to walk into the ocean. Maybe not at the end of this podcast, but stick around. I see us more like Bradley and Gaga. Um, and in fact, I did an interview recently and I did say, I was talking about how you'd sort of inspired me and motivated me and be my mentor. And then I realised how it sounded so schmaltzy and awful. So yes. I had to dismantle the sentiment and I said, it just takes one person. And I said, you were my Bradley. Yes, I mean, I think we should say, just to clear this up, <laughs> is I was offered a radio show by Absolute Radio yeah. and my first um, thought was... I'm going to get Emily Dean to do this if she will. And But let me be realistic about this. Yes, she was um, one of the funniest people I knew, but I always thought that she was someone who made me funny as well. So there was a selfish element. She got a lot of my references, more than most people. And so I did it partly as a sort of a comedy comfort blanket. It wasn't completely selfless. It's like, you know, one of the reasons I always think I enjoy prayer is that he gets all of my references. <laughs> I can just name drop Ephraim Zimblis Jr. and I know it's, it's landed. So you were, um, what, what, what stopped yeah. um, the, the acting? Oh, so the acting, yeah. Do you know, I think what stopped it was probably my mum, if I'm going to be really honest. Right. And... I think that again, that's an example of something I'd tell you because I trust that I can tell you that information without it being manhandled. Mm. But honestly, Frank, I think it was tough for her. And I think sometimes we act subconsciously. And I would just start going for auditions. I auditioned for the French Lieutenant's Woman and I sort of had Which to. was a massive movie. Yeah. And I had to go to the studio. For Meryl people who don't remember, it was like a sort of full length Scottish Widows advert. <laughs> Wasn't it? But with with Meryl Streep sort of really rising into... And you were offered a part in that. Yeah, and Jeremy Irons. Um, so my mum told me and she sat me down and I said, what, what happened with that? What happened with that? Because I kept being driven to the studio. And even as a child, I remember thinking, this is a nice car. They're making a fuss of me. Mm. It must have been about 11. And I sort of knew. You kind of know when you've done a good gig, you know, and I'd done a good audition. And then she said, I'm, I'm sorry, but they picked someone else. And my dad even made up some quite elaborate excuse, of course, giving it some literary bent, saying it was a friend of John Fowles. John Fowles was the author. Um, 
And this happened with another few parts as well. And then my sister told me years later when I was in my 30s, it was one of those bits of information that someone comes out with, like in a movie, and, and suddenly they freeze frame it. And you're like, what? Because it changes the whole, your whole sort of narrative arc. And she mm. said, oh, well, it's a bit like, you know, when you had all those parts and mum turned them down. What? Yeah. If it had been a film, I would have said, what the? Well, you, hopefully you'd have been <laughs> drinking tea at that time <laughs> and gone... <laughs> Yeah, but it must have been. That's a tough thing to hear. I was devastated, and I, I did. I was really upset with my mum, and I kind of played it down in the book. But again, I feel safe enough to talk to you about this. I, it was a really bad argument we had, and I did say, "Why did you do that?" And it was a difficult discussion that we had. And she, I think it was painful for her to access that, and I think she probably. My mum was not a bad person. She was a decent person, and, and I think it was. Sometimes it's hard to access your motives for doing something. And I think, you know, it was partly because I think she was concerned about my sister, who always, in our family, and you know my theory on this, Frank, and you won't have this problem because you've got one child, but I think when you have more than one child, it's very difficult not to brand them, not to make a decision about who they are. Mm. You know, you become Spice Girls, you become... A simplistic comedy version. Scary and baby. Yeah, that's what yeah. you become. And my sister was sort of angelic spice. Um, and I, I guess I was bad spice in a way. Mm. And I think people do that with their children and you take that through your life without realising. So that's what was happening there was bad spice can't get these parts because she's going to be a show off and angelic spice will get upset. Yeah. And in, in later life, you're going to drive over her. And break her legs in the whatever happened to baby Jane kind of mole. So your mom, if we give her the benefit of the doubt, might yeah. have been trying to save you from yourself, maybe. Oh yeah, or, or maybe trying to save my sister from me killing yes. her. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think so. She did say to me, "I was worried you'd become spoiled." I, I'd like to point out at this point that we, we, when we used to have guests on our radio show, we used to have a few young comics yeah. and actors who would say, "Oh, your mom taught me." Oh, to act, she's a really good teacher. She yeah. really understood and and, yeah. and really listened and, and helped a lot. Yeah. So maybe that was her, yeah. her real vocation, was teaching acting. And your dad, as you say, was a remarkable guy, um, a big TV intellectual at a time when that was something that wasn't considered to be freaky. <laughs> it's so true. And I, I think because my father was, he sort of was Wikipedia. So I just assumed everyone of a certain age was like that. And mm. I'm now discovering that's not true. No. <laughs> so I think, yeah, he was an arts reporter. He did a show called Late Night Lineup with Joan Bakewell, who's your mate, Frank. Mm. And It was revolutionary. It was re- it was, did you interviewed... ever see it or do you remember it? I do remember it because we, um, although we didn't have, uh, we didn't live in a, in a green room. We lived in that room where they make tea at the factory, I think. Um, <laughs> What's your room, the scullery? <laughs> my family never enforced um, sleepy time. So I used to stay up till 11, 12 o'clock at night. No one ever... I think there was a gap of seven years, well, there was, between me and my next brother. I think they forgot <laughs> that kids go to bed earlier than adults. So I did see. And let me tell you something about that, because your dad is a, a, a complicated figure in the yeah. book because he left the family home. Mm. And, I, um, and that's always difficult because the one who leaves is always the one who leaves if they live to be 100. 
they're always the one who leaves. But um, Joan Batewell, as you say, as a friend of mine, worked with him. Mm. And this was in the 60s. And he discovered, Joan told me, that she was getting paid considerably less than him for doing the same job. Mm. Um, one of the few bits of continuity that the BBC <laughs> have managed to keep going. <laughs> um, but the, he went to the boss and mm. said, this is really unfair that Joan, just she does what I do and, you know, you've got to give her more money or, you, or I'm, I'm going. Yeah. And, I mean, that was not motivated by being cool or looking great on Twitter. That was someone who just thought that that was damned unfair yeah. and went and spoke up. So, um, yeah, a complicated man, but not a man without great integrity. Yes, and actually, it's interesting, Frank. I remember you telling me that story, and I was quite tearful about that because I think it it was lovely to hear because it just showed a side to my father that where others had viewed him through a different prism and had a different experience of him. And, you know, you made that point about artists earlier. I think, you know, being difficult in a domestic setting, perhaps, I think also... People like that who make great changes. Listen, I'm sure I'm not saying my dad was like Gandhi, but Gandhi helped a lot of people. I don't think his wife had a great time, you know. So my point is that feminists you never hear about old Ma Gandhi. Oh, I do. Oh, I think okay. she had a rough time. He used to say things like, "You need to clean the toilet," and I think. And what I'm saying is this notion of the great man, yeah. the great mind, you know. I think those men can be complicated yes. sometimes to live with, and. I think, particularly back then. So my dad was brilliant in green rooms talking about feminism. I don't know, in the home setting, sometimes T- that didn't translate. Yeah, he didn't take the bins out. However, that information actually I found quite moving, if I'm honest, when you told me that, that yeah. Joan had said that to you, because I thought he, the, he, he'd thought about that and the fact that he did that for her was... Yeah, I thought it was pretty amazing, actually. It's amazing how many people I meet who understand their parents more after they die from speaking to people who knew them and stuff like true? that. Do you think that's true? Did you yeah. find that with your parents, though? I, um, yeah, my dad was just as difficult and violent. So, <laughs> no, I love my dad, but he was, um, he was an explosive character. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Um, he was he was actually he had that sort of um, Irish Catholic sentimentality which fits in well in the home in some respects but he also had a tremendous thirst (laughs) but you know it's hard I know from my own experience it's not easy being a parent and um, you said something to me Frank I'm sorry to interrupt but I was in I really wanted to ask you before I forget you said after you'd read my book you said something about there were aspects of my father not that you related to? No, or? no, that I related to. Certainly. And what were they? I think one of them is that thing of feeling that a literary quote of going to the great writers and great thinkers was a way of solving a very, very nuts and bolts domesticated problem. I, you know, when we were talking about doing this interview, mm. I was reading a book and I read something and I marked it and I thought, yeah, that's a very good... I'm going to read that quote. Not your book, <laughs> no. but another book. How dare you? Because yeah. um, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do okay, it Okay, go on. Um, there is a tragic core to yes. this book. Um, there's a lot of comedy. I 
You know, when people say I laughed and I cried, and that's mm. the stuff I've read a lot about this book. Yeah. But I made a noise when I did both of those. So that I laughed properly out loud at it. But when I cried at it, I sobbed. A, a friend of mine, I remember telling me, was um, shushed during in Golden, on Golden <laughs> Pond at the cinema. <laughs> because... You know, you cry at a film, but he was honestly... Really? And I, I, That's because you I know really me as well, Frank. No, I don't think it is. It may be. I don't mm. know. I, oh, can I not... I haven't read it not knowing no. you. No. But I, I sobbed would not be an exaggeration. The, the death of your sister mm. is one of the most heart-wrenching pieces yeah. of literature I've ever come across, factual or fiction. Mm. It's. Can you read it mm. without crying? Well, I had to read it for the audiobook. Mm. And it's interesting, that was the one bit... I was fine, because it's, you know, it's eight hours. Um, good luck, everyone. But um, as I was reading it, that was the one bit where I felt emotion coming up because I think it's interesting when you write something it's in your head as soon as you speak it out loud it sounds weird but it's reminding you that it happened again and it's you're literally inhabiting that space again um so that and that I went through that process writing it as well which is why it was tough because I had to put myself back in that intensive care unit and it's so vivid to me mm. people always say to you you forget everything, and you know this from losses you've experienced with your parents, but you, the whole period becomes a strange blur, but then that is absolutely pin sharp, that three-day period. I will never forget every aspect of it, from things like the colour of the shirt the consultant was wearing. Mm. You know, that was all absolutely stored away on my hard drive forever. And you were the editor of In Style Fashion <laughs> Magazine, of course. That might have helped that as and well. And my sister would have appreciated that I know I clocked the colour of the shirt he was wearing. Exactly, it was lilac, FYI. Um, but no, Frank, it was it was really difficult to write. And I did, that was the one point I broke down in the audio recording. However, I think it, it was a strange period because it was sort of drawn out over a few days. But the reason... I wrote it, and I, I hope I was as honest as possible about it, was because I'd never read anything where someone had honestly said what happened in an intensive care unit. From their point of view, I'd always read or seen Terms of Endearment, which is a great film, or mm. Beaches, or those kind of things, or EastEnders. Or, and I suppose I just wanted to try and convey what happens, you know, in, in an honest voice as possible, because... It's not like I was performing some sort of, you know, altruistic public service, but just because that's what it was the truth. And that's all you can write. If you commit to being authentic at the start, which I tried to do, you just have to write like no one's standing over your shoulder, mm. which I think you did in your book. And I remember reading your book thinking, I cannot believe you published this. Is he a lunatic publishing this? People are going to read this. Well, I think honesty is a very addictive thing. And I think when you write about people you love, you feel you owe them. Mm, mm. I mean, it, that is one of the, the things I... And I do love this book. I can honestly say that. Not because I'm trying to get people to buy it or doing you a favour or you're a mate. When I read it, I was excited to talk to you about it. 
because I thought, oh my God, you get a chance to really tell someone you love something they've done. How often, you know, how many times have I lied about that? <laughs> and now I can relax into it. Were well, you worried great. you wouldn't like it, Frank? I would have been if I were you. I would have been dreading it. I was worried because I thought there was tremendous pressure on this book. Yes, right. And the pressure was that precious cargo that I'm mm-hmm. talking about. I think if you're going to write about the death of your sister, the death of your mom, the death of your dad, like that, bang, 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 your world collapsing, you being orphaned in a short period of time, you being left with a family and then without a family in a short period of time, there's tremendous pressure because you don't want to write a rubbish book about that. You want to write a brilliant book because you that's an epitaph of sorts. Yes, it is. It and is. you don't want to give people you love a run-of-the-mill epitaph. You want to give them one that's really worthy of them. And that was the pressure. Yes, you're right. I do honestly think you pulled it off. And it was such a risk because there are still jokes. I mean, there's a bit where I laugh out loud in the book and at the vicar's joke, something I haven't done that much. <laughs> Although my priest, when he said um, good news and bad news about the, uh, about the roof fund... A, we've got all the money we need. B, it's still in your bank accounts. I thought it was a pretty good line. What's but, the priest? Oh, yeah, the priest says... The priest, uh, your mum's... Remember, he's just officiated at your sister's funeral, yeah, and now yeah. it's your mum's funeral. Yes. And he says... And he says, oh, dear Emily, we must stop meeting like this. Yeah, now, that is a great gag. Did you like but, that gag? But it is a gag. <laughs> I mean, told on a sinking ship. I mean, it's an incredible... Well, he said it at the funeral and there was a strange... You were at my mum's funeral, but there was a strange... I got the hat trick, Em. (laughs) I did all three. Well, you did the try... Oh, I'm so pleased you got the box set. But we're allowed to joke I'm your funeral friend. (laughs) Are you an ambulance chaser? (laughs) Yeah. My I'm like the Phantom fine. of the Opera. I just live at that church in Highgate. I go to all the funerals. Frank, my family were fine until you came into my life. Well, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> it was, I think, I remember um, you doing the eulogy at your sister's funeral. Oh, that was funeral, tough, wasn't it? And you got up there. And I think, I don't think you would have been able to do this if you'd not lived in the green room. Do you think because so? Because that performance gene, which was at the core of your being, it was, yeah. you still pulled it off and it was magnificent. Harrowing. Yeah, was it? It was like watching, you know that guy that walked in between uh, the Twin Towers on a tightrope? It was like that feeling, love, sorrow, or me. it was spectacular. And was it, it was it also... And again, I'm allowed to make this tasteless joke. I think it's a bit like when a child is in the semi-final of Britain's Got Talent and you think, oh, they're going to get through it without crying. Yeah. But I did, Matt. But you know, it's amazing. A couple of people said to me afterwards, oh, that felt not like you. It felt like a performance. And that's... Well well done. That's the difference. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? I'll tell you something about that. I think I wondered if you went home and thought, is it all right that I pulled that off? I once did a gig in Edinburgh and there were two cabs waiting outside my house, one to take my child to hospital because he had a temperature of 40 degrees and one to go into the opening night of my Edinburgh run. And I sent my partner off with our baby 
and I went and did the gig. But I didn't just do the gig, I stormed it. I absolutely rocked it. There was funny audience work, it was all there. And I walked off stage, got into a cab and went to the hospital to see my child. And that night, having prayed a big thank you that he was okay, I did lie in bed and think, what kind of of a person am I that I could get on and do that rocking gig? Which is a weird thing because we do have to... Yeah. Continue. Well, I can remember, I loved it when you said that. You felt like my priest, not that I have <laughs> one. Um, but it was the way you said, we have to continue. I thought, oh. Yes, I but, we, that. but Just, we do. But, but no, I was at that gig, incidentally, Frank, that you did, and you did storm it. Yes. Weirdly, I was at that gig, I remember. And I know that feeling because I, I genuinely felt, um, yeah, I felt, I felt some guilt. I think... I feel guilt still now, if I'm completely honest. I didn't just feel guilt on that night. I feel guilt when I laugh sometimes. Mm. I feel if I'm with my sister's children and something funny happens or I'm with them when they discover something like Faulty Towers on YouTube, something me and my sister used to enjoy, although I think she'd be angry with John Cleese today because he's not behaving well, is he, on social media? Um, But, yeah, I think if I come across something that is a first for them that my sister's missed out on, if that makes sense. Yeah. I feel guilt. I f- and I, or I laugh with them. And I feel... It, it sounds strange, and I feel that with my parents sometimes as well, that, you know, that survivor's guilt, and it's also... They always say about grief that recovery is complicated, isn't it? Because it's not the easier it gets. It's more that when you're able to get through a day without crying, you don't want to forget them. You think, well, I want to keep them alive, and yeah. if I'm OK, then... They're receding and they're not part of my story. Yeah, but I don't... Though I think you do have the performance gene, mm. I think one thing I really respect you for is I think you've avoided it as far as grief is concerned. I you think you've to. took it mm. real. Mm. And I think that... I mean, you know, we've all seen those families leaving the courtroom or with their arm around each other and that may be real grief, but it may be TV camera grief and it worries me. Mm. And what you were saying earlier, Frank, about I think I made a decision with that book, how to handle that was that everything was from my point of view. So obviously when I talk about my sister who was diagnosed, you know, at 43 and to get that news was awful to be told you've got a few months. And it was really interesting because when I first wrote that, I edited that, that scene in the book more times than any other because I wanted to just keep it factual and I didn't want to over-dramatise it. Um, I just... Yeah, but I have to stop you there, because it's not just journalism. Right. It, it's better than that. It is beautifully written. The whole book, the prose, and I am a lover of prose, it is beautifully, beautifully written. And that's important, right? because there's so much despair in that book. Mm. And if you're... If someone is describing despair in life-affirming prose, in the kind of prose that makes you think, isn't it brilliant that human beings can write like this? Then you've got some light in that darkness. And I threw some jokes in, apparently. Yeah, and jokes. <laughs> but, I mean, you pitched it right. You know, I once went... Uh, James Elroy, the, the crime writer, his oh, yeah. mother was um, brutally murdered in the 40s, Mm. and he reopened the case in something like the 80s or 90s. He went back, he looked at the photos from the crime scene and all that. This is his mother. Mm. 
and he wrote a book about it. And I went um, to see him talk about it, and he did a book signing. And when he signs it, he goes to Frank, love James Elroy, she lives, exclamation mark. And I thought he'd slightly <laughs> misjudged the attitude. To the, I think you get it spot on. Oh, Frank. I think it's the writing is economical, it's slimline, it never oozes. Mm. And that's important because there's so much emotion in that book that the prose has to be tight. It yeah. has to give you something to hold on to, I, I think. Re- I've really read this book and thought about it. I love it. Can I give read you a quote? Yes. Oh, please It's from um, Tobias Wolff's book, Old School, in oh, yeah. which Robert Frost, the poet, comes to visit the school. And he talks about writing about grief. Now, he's a poet, but there's a point where poetry and prose, if it's this good, cross over. Okay. He says, I am thinking of Achilles' grief. Now, Achilles, um, I'm sure you've read Homer, but anyway, all you need to know is his friend is killed in war and he breaks his heart. Mm. And he said, the famous terrible grief, let me tell you boys something, such grief can only be told in form. And for form here we can read... Really, really good prose. Maybe only really exists in form. Form is everything. Without it, you've got nothing but a stubbed toe cry. Sincere, maybe, for what that's worth, but with no depth or carry, no echo. You may have a grievance, but you do not have grief. And grievances are for petitions, not poetry. And if you're going to write about grief, it has to have what it deserves. It needs yeah. brilliant prose or brilliant poetry to carry it through and I think you achieved that. Oh, fine. Fair That's play. the nicest thing. I mean, also, the irony of trying to write well about grief is that it gives you a hell of a lot of grief in the process yeah. because it's the toughest thing I've ever had to do. We haven't even mentioned the dog, Frank. We need to We're going to get to the dog. Okay. I want to say something to you, though. Actually, I'm going to save what I have to say to you at the end. You don't like it because it's soppy. Mention the dog, please, or whatever you have next. Okay, I'm... I'm, I'm your witness. Um, yes, Ray, your dog. It comes as something a bit like the emotional cavalry at the end of yeah. the book. And I didn't realise, actually, how much um, he meant to you. Really? There's a point in the book where I really wince, and that's where you go... It's a sort of therapy-based thing, and you put a a sticker Mm. on your chest that says unlovable, which you've written about yourself. And I... How did you feel you didn't like that? Well, A, I don't think you are, Mm. but I on on a colder level, I thought it was fascinating that that's the word you'd choose. I would never choose that about me, and I think I'm probably closer (laughs) than you are. Texting on 8-12-15. Mine was incorrigible. Who is more unlovable, Frank Skinner or Emily Dean? It's a tricky no, one. Don't text in. No, I, I've always had felt that about myself, but I think the exercise, you're right, it's a, it's a thing I did called the Hoffman process, which I'd resisted because, again, as I explain in the book, that was the kind of thing my father, he called it facile Californianism. Mm. Any sort of self-exploration, any sort of... My dad liked Greek philosophers, what he called the governors, that's what he used to call the Greeks. And so if it wasn't sort of wildly literary, my dad thought it was kind of worthless. Well, my dad called tin dog food something that was invented by, I'll quote, cranks. (laughs) That they don't want want that. Give them scraps. They want scraps. 
They've always lived, the cavemen, they lived on scraps. They didn't have their own food. So it's a different view. He lived. He loved dogs, but in a different way. I, I love. Um, I love co- the expression "cranks." Cranks is a I great. Know, it's, you it's see, cranks to us was a lovely health food store it, where we true. went for lunch. That's true. So he was right. <laughs> <laughs> but because I always think of you telling me about yeah. the dog, the dog who you had a sort of a um, box fears type relationship with, the one who um, disrobed you <laughs> when you were a child. <laughs> I would have thought that would have traumatised you and put you off. Can you just tell the story? Yeah, so what happened, it was very much my my Bucks Fizz moment. And for younger listeners, they are associated with having a skirt ripped off, Frank, mid-performance, aren't they, at the Eurovision? That was their shtick, essentially, wasn't it? It was the very, very early (laughs) days of Velcro. (laughs) And I, I, I think it's been downhill all the way since then. I like to think... The moment the, the skirt ripping off bit was sort of the equivalent of their knobby dancing in three lines, yeah, which probably. is when the, the song reaches its peak. So I was in an adventure playground with my sister, and as I've said, we weren't a dog family. We didn't have Tupperware and Labradors. We had actors and the Sex Pistols filming in our bedroom. So they were sort of an alien species to me, the, the dog families. And I was in an adventure playground, and a dog ran in, and I was sort of kitted out in this hopelessly impractical, expensive clothes that my mother would put it in, including this wraparound silk skirt. Came over to me, ripped my skirt off, and I was just stood there with my pants. And it went running into the woods with the skirt trailing behind. Incredible story. And I remember there were 30 children that must have been staring at me. Oh, brilliant. That's what I became. How you could become a dog lover after that? <laughs> I don't know, the public but, humiliation. But you're right, Frank, about what they represented to me, dogs, and what they still represent and what Raymond, my dog, now represents, which is, it's just that sense of, I don't know, constancy, which I never had. But he does love you. Love because me? Because, you know, dogs are famous, aren't they, for being these sort of dull, dull loyal lovers. <laughs> That's what they're famous for. They're exactly the sort of lovers that most women avoid. But if it's a dog, it's kind of all right. <laughs> Although you can get some bad boy dogs. Oh, can you? Okay. I think there are some dogs, I don't know, I, I, I think some dogs, the German Shepherd is a bit of a commitment phobe, I find. Oh, okay, yeah. You've got to be careful. But can I say, my dog Raymond, who is a Shih Tzu, what did your son, Buzz, who is a huge fan of Raymond's, I think he's turning you on to the, over to the dog side, what did he say about our walk with Raymond? Can you remember? He said it was the best walk he'd had <laughs> since 2016. <laughs> He never said what that walk was in 2016. I don't remember him pointing one out. It's remarkable. But it's good that he's um, keeping a log <laughs> of his walks. Oh, I love that so much. That's the best review. You know what? I wanted to ask Buzz if he would give me that as a quote for my podcast <laughs> and say the best walk I've had since 2016. I'm sure he'd be okay with it. But I am, um, yeah, that, I think the dog, you're absolutely right. And Kathy, your partner, said that to me. She said, I didn't, she said something very sweet, Kathy. She called me. Really? And, <laughs> <laughs> Edit that, please. Um, she was lovely because she called me and she kept saying, I never read books. You know, and she always exaggerates. She says, I haven't read a book for 42 years well, or something. It's an exaggeration, but she doesn't read many books. No. Certainly not. She stayed up all night and read it. I've just been doing gigs, um, mm. Liverpool, Manchester, etc. Thanks on tour, by the way. Go and and there's a please. guy been driving me around called Kumar, and he said, "Oh, my wife's just found up." She said, uh, 
She's exhausted. She was up till quarter past three reading Emily Dean's book. Oh, Kumar's wife. And then my sister-in-law said to me, um, I was reading Emily's book. She said, it's exhausting, isn't it? I said, well, it's very emotional. She said, no, but I literally, I couldn't... <laughs> I thought, I'll do another chapter. I must do... I mean, it's really the word on the street. On the it's, industry? It's really... Um, what people... would your dad say about my book, Frank? This is what I want to know. What would your dad say if he read my book? He'd think it was too much emotion expressed, I think, wouldn't he? I th- well, his dad was 80, still working, and it's was hit, and hit by a motorbike. And his family never told him about it until it was too late. So he lost the chance of the deathbed. Just that conversation you get the chance to yeah. have. And I knew that broke him up and there was something. Mm. So he was a hard man, my dad. He wasn't a man like myself, although I learned a lot. You know, he was very funny and he loved football and stuff and I got a lot from him. So He used to keep an old tobacco tin with a big dent in it where the, where the motorbike had hit my granddad. And so he was a sentimental man, yeah. Um, I don't know what he'd make of a book like this. I mean, it's a different world. I remember you once saying oh, to no, me... I knew! I know you what said, you're going to say. I feel well, sick. Everyone's got at least one contact. I mean, your dad must have known like a journalist or something. What? It's a different world, but it's a world I find fascinating. But, Frank, um, I wanted your world, you see, when I was growing up. Well, I... I mean, I, except for the outside toilet bit. Yeah, obviously. Okay, but I wanted the fa- the nice family and the brothers and the sisters and the sense of... Like, I feel... But, you know, I don't think that... You see, the gaps are too big in my family. Seven years is too big a gap to be really close. Right. I know it's a tragedy your sister died, but I still envy you that period of tremendous closeness you had. Do you? I remember you telling me, and, and this broke my heart in two ways and it was when you said something had happened to you in your life Mm. I don't even remember if it was funny or bad and you picked the phone up to phone Rachel and remembered that that wasn't possible Mm. anymore Mm. and part of me thought oh my god that sense of loss is unbearable the being Mm re-shocked but then I thought how great to have a sibling who you just pick up and phone and have that intimacy with. Even though you don't have it anymore, you had it. And I've never had that, even though I've got two brothers and a sister. Really? So... You know, people always talk about there's that there are those sort of Instagram type quotes that are always attributed usually to Audrey Hepburn, Marilyn Monroe, or the Queen sometimes gets a look in. And people always say that the Queen said grief is the price we pay for love. It doesn't seem the sort of thing like the Queen would say to me. But anyway, I can't imagine her saying Never grief pa- pa- is the pa- price for anything in her life. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she meant Greece. Maybe, maybe she's. Isn't he from Greece? That's what she meant. Greece is the place we go for love. That's what she actually said. I mean, you can see how that got mangled. Well, look, um, I mean, so you lost your family. You got a dog. Mm. It's beautifully told. It's incredibly moving, but always funny, and. Always brilliantly written. Um, I'm glad you've got a dog because I'm I'm very keen that people who don't have children should have a dog because why should be the on, <laughs> the only ones who are tied to the house and can't go away for the weekend spontaneously, etc., etc., etc. So I'm glad that happened. 
Can I ask you one last question? Yeah. And I, I should say that you've got a TV show, uh, Comedians... Comedians watch- Watching Football. Uh, which you're on. Which is on Sky. Um, it's on Thursdays generally. And there's Lee Mack and Josh Widdicombe and Matt Ford, our and, absolute radio stable mate. And there'll be another book because uh, if you only wrote one book, that would be a terrible waste. Um, mm. You've got your podcast where you interview people while taking which a dog you for came a on and, that, and everyone says that's their favourite one. Why well, I had to borrow a dog. Um, yeah, called Peanut. Fine. And the Peanut. first thing you said was, oh, I'm a bit worried I'm going to have a peanut allergy. Yeah, he, and he I was thought, right. he's off. He was he's all, off. He was all right, Peanut. I, we got on okay. Um, I suppose at the end of all this, I want to end by saying, how are you? How are you now? Well, I... It's a very interesting question, that, because I am so much better now I've given birth to the book. That was my child. Yeah. Um, Which will make me money as opposed to the other way around. (laughs) Um, I hope. But I feel relief. I feel relief that it's not terrible that I mean it might be but people seem to be enjoying it which is good and Emily you don't have to undercut everything <laughs> it's it's it, you've done something amazing I well, urge anyone who listens to this to read it they will not be let down by it do you know I feel Frank what's been and I wanted to mention this actually because you and I obviously do a show on Saturdays and we have a lot of men listening to our show and books particularly about the subjects that I cover are normally bought by women traditionally and I've had so many messages from people reaching out to me and you know the ones that have moved me the most I got a bloke who said I'm an ex-paratrooper I'm a trucker from the northeast it's those it's men in their 50s saying my sister died my parents died I never talked to anyone about this and I didn't think I could talk about it and it was okay to cry and I've read your book and because I listened to you on Frank's show I would never have picked this up otherwise because I love Frank and I thought, oh, well, may as well read this. And it's allowed them to think about their loss. And it sounds a bit schmaltzy, but that to me is amazing because I sort of think women are at the point where they'll read this anyway. But I worry about men not being able to talk about this stuff. It really does worry me. And I think, okay, so through you, Frank, you know, fixing all these men. (laughs) <laughs> what I got was a lot of women writing to me saying, I always felt bad about one night stands. But now, no. But when um, you, you asked me how I was, how sorry. How are you? I so how an, I am is... I'm, that's, I'm asking you in the big yes, way. Not, I know. Not morning, how are you? I'm asking you, uh, you well, know, because I'm, the person who wrote this book could still be broken. Yes. I don't know. Do you know what? I There was a great thing that Sheryl Sandberg said when she experienced grief. And she said, sometimes a great thing to ask someone when they've gone through challenging times and grief, is not how are you, but how are you today? Because how are you can feel overwhelming. Mm. How am I today? I can cope with that. How am I today? I'm really good. But I think it's always there, Frank. You know, I say, I make the analogy that it's like glitter grief. So it's like when someone sends you one of those cards and it just gets everywhere. So you clear it up off the kitchen table. It's a little bit on the carpet over there. One Thursday, you'll see it. Or it'll just suddenly fall out, and you'll think, "Okay, I don't. I, that, that's never. I'm never going, ever going to get rid of all of those particles completely." And they strike when I least expect it. I had a lunch with my editor and my agent yesterday, and I felt tearful. 
And I think it's partly because the book seems to be going down well and I'm like, oh, why isn't my sister here to see this? She'd be so proud. She would be so happy. Yeah. No, that's made me cry. <laughs> but my um, only someone who grew up in your family could be quite <laughs> grief and glitter. <laughs> no. Oh, I love that. But no, I'm I'm happy and you know, like I feel when you asked me that question, I immediately thought my sister I felt tearful, but in a really lovely way, because I thought, my God, maybe she'd be really proud of me. Well, when I wrote the story of my life, making yeah. it about me, obviously. <laughs> I felt like I'd sort of spring-cleaned my consciousness. I mean, it is a cathartic. I've said yes. everyone, everyone should write their life story. If it's in some, you know, an A4 pad, they know it'll be Even Jacob Rees-Mogg. Especially. <laughs> but it, 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 did it help? Do you know, it didn't, and you'll understand this because I know you've had the odd bit of therapy, haven't you, but... At the time, my therapist said to me... Well, it really, it was Kath, but I went along. <laughs> <laughs> it was Kath, wasn't it? <laughs> well, it was couple therapy. Did you say but, to you your know, mate... I think me and the therapist both knew it wasn't really me. <laughs> I was the control in the experiment. <laughs> oh, God, you were... You're sorry, No, on. so I was... That's brilliant. Um, you... I, I, te- I thought when I had therapy that I said to my therapist, sorry, when I was discussing this, she said, I said, it's been tough writing it. And you know, because I think you and Kath probably noticed that I isolated myself when I wrote this book. I went a little bit J.D. Salinger. And you wouldn't talk about it I wouldn't talk either. to anyone. I couldn't. And I, because you know what? I went into a room and I was with ghosts every day for a year. And I know this sounds strange, but to write truthfully about it, it, that's what it felt like. And I almost had to just stay in my room like Rochester's wife and just get mm. on with it, Google it. And so, yeah, I, I sort of felt my friends were... Wor- and I could sense my friends thinking I was maybe not a good friend over that period when I was writing the book. I detached myself. I wasn't very open. And I thought they'll be there when I come out. When I come out. And they have been. And But I, my therapist said, I think this has been very cathartic probably because you obviously still had stuff to process. And I went, don't be so ridiculous. You're an idiot. And then I had to ring her and say, yeah, you were right. Sorry. Because <laughs> I've learned things you get angry at are true. Well, like Rochester's wife, you're on fire. <laughs> um. Help! I'm, on, I'm actually on fire. Frank, can I say something to you, which I, don't, I know you'll think is schmaltzy, but I'm, please... I'm going to do one of the most straight down the middle basic clogs you've ever heard in your life. So let's do have the some, clog, let, and then I'd like to say something no, to you. No, you, you go first. I think nothing can follow the okay. clog and feel, and feel respectable. <laughs> Um, I just want to say, I've said this a lot in other interviews, but I've never said it to you directly because I worry about it being too emotional and that I feel sometimes I have to dismantle things with humour with you. But I did want to say I would honestly not have written this book without you, I don't think, and that's partly because, and that's not just I'm a guest on Des O'Connor flattering the host, it's true, and it's because you gave me the confidence I never did I never sort of took control of my own life I I never had any confidence in my ability and I did feel unlovable and I wasn't very good at anything and you were the first person that that sort of had faith in me and it really changed my life and that's why I ended up writing a book and you were my mentor you weren't the mentor I was expecting but you were 
and I'm really grateful to you. And you've made me be honest. It's really hard to live to live this way, though, Frank. But it's because yeah. So the book is is dedicated to my sister, but it's also you're in brackets somewhere. You can buy Emily's book. <laughs> Everybody died, so I got a dog on Amazon or in all good bookshops. <laughs> Emily, thank you so much. Um, congratulations. You've done something very, very special. Love you. Mean it. <laughs>